Marshall, and you are listening to the Things Observed podcast. And today I'm speaking with a very special guest, the attorney, author, and researcher William Ramsey, host of William Ramsey Investigates, who has written the books Prophet of Evil, Aleister Crowley, 9-11 and the New World Order, Global Death Cult, The Order of Nine Angles, Adam Waffen, and The Slaughter of Innocents, as well as Children of the Beast, Aleister Crowley's Shadow Over Humanity. Ramsey has also made two documentaries, Occult Hollywood Volume 1 and Prophet of Evil, Aleister Crowley 9-11 and the New World Order. And today I have brought Mr. Ramsey on the show to discuss the research from his book, Abomination, Devil Worship and Deception in the West Memphis Three Murders. And in the description of the show, I will have links to all of his work so you can support his work. But now that I have introduced you, could you just let my audience know a little bit about you and where it is that they can find you? Yeah, I uh, just was kind of, uh, I have a, a mem- I'm a member of the State Bar of California in 98. I passed the bar. I worked for a while. Then I just kind of was always researching. So my first book was published in 2010. That was Prophet of Evil. Then 2012 was Abomination. So this book is over 10 years old. Um, and then I have a couple other books you mentioned. I have a podcast that's in the top 0.5% of podcasts in the world titled William Ramsey Investigates, an independent investigative journalism podcast. And then my website is WilliamRamseyInvestigates.com if people want to get copies of my books or signed copies. And then you can also see five. I have actually have five documentaries now on Vimeo on a variety of different subjects, but uh, two on the smile, what's known as the smiley face killers and then prophet of evil, children of the beast, and then a cult Hollywood. So I've been busy over the last, you know, probably been a journalist, active journalist for the last 12, 13 years, but yeah. Abomination really kind of grew out of my interest in Aleister Crowley when I found out that Aleister Crowley had a connection to this kind of uh, criminal case that a lot of people knew about. Interesting. Yeah, that was actually going to be the next question that I was going to ask is what made you decide to write about the West Memphis Free Murders? I mean, the the thing was, is that I was researching my second book, Children of the Beast. I actually did an Indiegogo to raise funds of it. And, and while I was researching i came across a clip from the paradise lost documentary that came out in 1996 and it mentioned alistair crowley and i had just done extensive amounts of research into him for a prophet of evil which is essentially a biography so uh it really kind of made me take a, a 90 degree turn and go and look into this case and why was alistair crowley and, and the public uh perception of it in my perception was that they were guilty back in 1996, and they got off in, in 2011, August of 2011, on the technicality. So that was my public perception. I remember when they got out. But then I started researching, and a lot of the files of the court files were compiled and are still available at a website called Callahan's 8K. So that kind of allowed me kind of put my legal hat on and look into actually what happened. And I got a completely different perception than what was publicly kind of bandied about, I would say, in PR kind of perception of the case. I found that there was a lot of occultism, if not just devil worship. Aleister Crowley was involved. There were mentions of Crowley actually in the court record and by some of these guys. So that really is kind of how I got into this. And I was in a very small minority who, who believed these guys were actually, they are guilty at law. Um, they, they were, they pled guilty in 2011 to first degree murder, but I think that it was just, so I was in a kind of a small minority when I put out this book, but I think it stands the test of time. It has a lot of uh, information that 
a lot of people overlook or just they don't want to research it. That actually was done in these kind of criminal cases. So uh, I think it's important for people to look through actually what the state was doing when they, they arrested them. I think they were, the crimes were committed on May 5th, 1993, and they were, all three were arrested June 3rd, 1993, and then convicted, both convicted in 1994. Yes. And no, it is definitely refreshing to get a different perspective on it because the only perspective that I had really uh, had on it, you know, prior to engaging with your work and reading Abomination, which was, um, I would say an enjoyable read, but uh, it is, it's so dark and stuff, you know, but it was definitely informative and I did um, enjoy it to whatever extent that you can given the subject matter, but it was refreshing to get a new look on it because all I had been exposed to was the first in the series of Paradise Lost documentaries, which, you know, we'll get into, but most certainly is not a uh, giving you the whole picture of what it is that happened. But just for those who have no idea what it is talking of, what we're talking about. So on May 5th of 1993, there was three second grade boys and they would go through a bike ride through Robin Hood Hills and they would disappear. And the next day that the, these eight year olds, they would be found dead. So could you just tell us a little bit about Steve Branch, James Michael Moore and Christopher Fires? and the fate that they would meet yeah so the uh they were out biking they were i think one of them was in a boy scouts uniform they're eight years old and they were disappeared in in kind of a residential rural part of west memphis so west memphis is west across the mississippi from memphis proper it was kind of a lower middle class uh community back then in 1993 so they disappeared there was a huge search they were found the next day uh, submerged in water. And according to the uh, medical examiner, his name was Peretti, they were, one was um, bled out and died, and his genitals were missing. And then the other two were tied up in a kind of a strange fashion with uh, their shoelaces. Actually, they were tied up with their left wrist to left ankle, right wrist to right ankle, and they were found to be drowned. So they were alive before they were placed in water. So it was a very ugly crime scene. There are pictures of it, I think, in the first Paradise Lost documentary. Two more would follow, um, aligning blame away from the, the ones who were found guilty in 1994. But yeah, so it was a very brutal crime. And um, the police were, were really searching uh, for people to, who did it. And they interviewed uh, Damien Eccles, who was there. And then he he, I think he failed, if my memory serves me correct, he failed a lie detector test and then clammed up and said he wouldn't say anything. And then it led to the police kind of were uh, trying to find somebody. They brought in a kid named Jesse Miss Kelly on, with the permission of his dad. He was under 18, who then confessed and told the whole story about what happened and uh, mentioned the names of Jason Baldwin and, and Damien Eccles. So they were all arrested. Yes. So what was it that made investigators first start to take these three into consideration? I mean, I know that Eccles was certainly saying some strange stuff when he was being initially interviewed by the police. So if you could tell us just a little bit about that. Yeah, just kind of a weird thing. I think they went and talked to him the next day. There was a mention from his uh, parole officer was Jerry Driver. A lot of these people have passed away, by the way. But I mean, it's been so long. It's literally been 30 years since the crimes. But um, so 
I think the police went out the second day and interviewed Eccles, took his picture, so it's in the case files, and asked him questions. And he kind of answered in a strange way, how did you think a person would feel about this? And he said he would feel good, which is very strange. And uh, he had had a psych history, which came out in a later appeals case later on, um, I think in 1996. But I don't know if the police knew the the totality of that at the time. But uh, he was definitely on their radar. They didn't have any evidence enough to arrest him or Baldwin. I don't know if Baldwin was as much on the radar, but it's because Eccles had a criminal history. I think he was on probation. He had been, uh, he was on juvenile probation at the time for like uh, sitting in somebody else's property, somebody else's trailer. So um, yeah, it was, uh, he he was definitely on their radar. Oh, a radar as long as, as long as other people, you can look through all of, all of these police files are available. Somebody did the compiling and you can see the notes of people they're interviewing in town. And there's a lot of statements from other people uh, that they were trying to get a feel for what was really going on uh, in West Memphis in 1993. Yeah, and, you know, in the back of your book, Abomination, towards the appendices, um, you have a list of all the different people who were investigated by West Memphis investigators in relation to the case, because, you know, something that's kind of parroted in these, you know, Paradise Lost documentaries and by supporters of the West Memphis Three is that, you know, there was basically a lack of investigation and that essentially these, you know, kids were just investigated because they liked wearing all black and Metallica t-shirts. And so you mentioned a little bit about how Eccles had this history of psychiatric problems. So could you just tell us a little bit about, you know, was Damien Eccles just some poor misunderstood outsider with a penchant for black clothes and heavy metal music or was there something, you know, darker and more There's, troubled that's yeah. absent from that picture? Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot more to the story. And it came out in his appeal. So when he was uh, convicted in 94, all three were convicted. Then there was an appeals process. And part of that appeal against the death penalty was their claim as defense was like uh, insanity defense, that he wasn't well, that they didn't know it. So his defense team went and compiled his his records. He actually was in three um facilities he was in one facility twice in arkansas and in another facility when his family briefly moved to oregon and so all those records were compiled and they're voluminous and you can see them people can it's known within just kind of cases exhibit 500 because there's 500 pages so a lot of doctors saw him he was diagnosed psych drugs i think it was impramine um, but they also tells the tale about his family his his mindset at that time uh, what he was into, there's mentions of occultism, blood drinking, uh, you know, weird effect, uh, missions by himself. And I think he was actually on social uh, security. Dis- he was on disability. I think he applied for and got disability when he was 18, which some of his defense attorneys didn't know at the time. So he was actually, I think, at law disabled um, for whatever reason. So uh, that is ne- is always kind of overlooked in this case. I mean, a lot of these people who are pro or sympathetic for the West Memphis Three overlook a lot of the evidence that was compiled in numerous court cases. They almost never mention also the appeals to the Supreme Court of Arkansas, who looked at the lower court case and verified and affirmed everything. They didn't overturn anything. So they looked at all the facts as well and said, this is right. So they, they, 
they're conveniently overlook a lot of these stuff. And they also overlook a guy, the George Woods affidavit, which is another uh, assessment of who Eccles was at the time. And, and, and Woods said he, he didn't, he didn't have an accurate defense because he didn't have an understanding of time and place at the time that the, the court case took place in 94. So the George Woods affidavit people need to look at. So there's so many things that are conveniently left out of the record when people analyze the West Memphis three. And a lot of them, you almost can always, for me, like I've been doing this for over 10 years, it's it's exhausting, but you can almost could tell exactly when somebody's going to get the, a bad or incorrect understanding of the court cases when they start mentioning they, they watched a documentary. So those documentaries are conveniently leaving out. And I think that they're more salacious. I wouldn't even call them a documentary. I call it a pseudo documentary because they don't actually document the documents that were in the court case. I think that there's a lot of uh, obfuscation, in my opinion, and also, you know, looking at other subjects. They were like they were focused on John Mark Byers, who's one of the stepfathers and one of them, and then moved on to Terry Hobbs. So there's a lot of things that I think, in my opinion, um, Berlinger and Sanofsky, who's passed away, just I think that they were kind of just doing a Hollywoodized version of this very disturbing crime case. And I, and I think it was a disservice to the public, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree. And I would say even if you do find them to be innocent, um, I just, you know, I had watched the first part, you know, years ago. And so leading up to us having this discussion, I read your book and I was, you know, looking at some of the websites that you mentioned in the introduction that had been helpful to you. But then I also wanted to balance, you know, out my perspective and look at the other position. So I've watched now the first two documentaries. I didn't get around to the third one this week, but it is very much, you know, a Hollywood sized, you know, uh, tale of the events. And it also seems to be pretty emotionally manipulative. I mean, not only if you watch this, I mean, they don't mention, you know, anything about Damien Eccles really and his significant history of mental illness. You know, he's reported as walking around with animal skulls in his backpack at school. Um, there's multiple people who said that he had hurt animals. I believe that he like had stomped on a sick dog to death. And um, we'll get into the rumors of occultism, but I mean, also a history of violence and threats of violence. Like you mentioned earlier, the the blood drinking, I mean, you would really just think that he was an outsider. And another thing that I found particularly manipulative about the documentaries is from the onset, from the first one, when you, you know, minutes with turning it on, it's showing in the court them showing pictures of the dead boys, which I did not know that you could show naked dead children on uh, television good point. like that. Yeah, good point. Yeah, no, I uh, that I was surprised. I mean, I have seen crime scene photographs and stuff like that when I've been researching into into other things, but it was uh, kind of shocking to me. Um, not even the pictures. I mean, those are certainly shocking and grotesque and hard to look at, but just that they had uh, had done that, and it didn't seem to be in a tasteful way. If there even is a tasteful way that you can do that, you know, with kind of this clever editing and the sanitarium by Metallica playing in the background. Right. So definitely found that a, a little bit off putting along with many other things in the documentary. So we've talked a little bit about Eccles and his 
history of mental illness, but he also was interested in the occult. So was this a a fleeting interest? Is he kind of like a proto Tumblr witch that we have today, or you know, right. was it something more? Well, than it's just a good the, question. Yeah, just was it anything well, more you, than the run of the mill edgy teenager? Right. Well, I think that it's portrayed as that. And I think you can break up his life from everything leading up to the arrest in 93, his time in jail, and then what happened in 2011. So leading up to 93, we have some decent amount of information. You have a lot of police statements. You have his statement. You have him after his arrest and in court, in a court of law, being mentioned about him writing something about Aleister Crowley. So he wrote like who was Alistair Crowley the prosecutor asked him what he was doing was writing in kind of a cipher or a secret language uh, the name of Alistair Crowley so why are you interested in somebody who's like a probably the most well-known occultist of all time at least in the western world uh, at least in you know modern history Uh, so there's that issue and then there's also just stories from Jesse Miss Kelly about all kinds of stuff they're doing other statements made to police uh, his own statement that he's interested in the cult, that he's a vampire. Those are in, that's in the, in the exhibit 500. And he asked for, I think when he was in jail, he asked for, um, oh, I can't remember the author's encyclopedia of witchcraft. So you see his interests uh, fall in that vein. And that was claimed. And then he was asked on in the court also, and there's a clip of this, like, do you know anything about the dark side of the cult? And he responded, I know everything. So that was when he was 18. So I think that that's important. And then when he was in jail, and now he's been out of jail, he talked about being in jail like it was using he was using it to further his practice or his whatever esoteric practices. So he was uh, practicing ceremonial magic or something like that. He claims to be now a ceremonial magician. And then after he gets out, he gets all these occult tattoos all over his body. He's hanging out and associating with other known occultists that I'm aware of. Uh, Genesis P. Orge and some of these other people. And uh, he has like the cipher of the Illuminati words all over his body. He tur- he claimed to turn his whole body into like a magic book. Like that was his goal. Um, and just recently on the Tim Pool broadcast, whatever podcast he mentioned, the person who, in- two people who influenced him the most were Aleister Crowley and Joel Osteen. So he's not really left the whole... Uh, Aleister Crowley influence uh, and it's been 30 years since he was arrested which is really fascinating so I think that and also if you look at his books he's published uh, like at least four books on magic and pamphlets and uh, has said he's a practicing ceremonial magician like I said so I think that his um, he's definitely not a dabbler is what I can say for sure. Like, I don't know the totality. One of the things I found out that happened was in jail is that I was, had studied Crowley's organization, the OTO. Well, while he was in jail, the OTO in Arkansas published an article called SK 931. And that was Eccles jail number was SK 931. And in that he admitted to being a, a member of Thelema. This was probably in the late nineties, but that puts him into the whole, um, environment of kind of a secret society of uh, the OTO, but also they named their library, the Damien Eccles library. Like it's in their writing. It's in the OTO's writing, which also indicates, and he had tons of books. There was, he was, uh, he calls, you know, he reads a lot and so something happened probably two or three, uh, maybe four years ago is that 
his wife and him had a rental storage facility that they didn't pay the rent and somebody bought it and they got a lot of his material, but they showed this like almost like a little mini library of occult books people had sent him. So it seems like he was taking those occult books and giving them to the OTO enough of them to, for them to call it the OTO library. So there's just so many uh, connections and ideas. And he does all these different shows where talks about moon magic and he knows Crowley's kind of dictums uh what the aim of science aim of religion or whatever it is so he I think is very knowledgeable uh in my opinion about uh occult subjects yeah that's very interesting about the OTO and his connection to them and the library being named after him I was not aware of all of that. And it's also very interesting. You don't hear the name Joel Osteen and Alistair Crowley right next to each other very often. No, so you don't. No, you so don't. that is a certainly It is very strange, but it it seems like that's kind of a bit of a camouflage because I've never mentioned it, heard him mention in the other other way, shape or form, the not like anything Christian themed. So even just I mean, I Osteen to me is a questionable character. He's very much of a prosperity preacher in my opinion, but, uh, and he's, he says like four like Italian sports cars or something, but, uh, it is interesting that he mentioned his name. It's, uh, I think maybe, maybe that was for, uh, PR purposes. I don't know. Perhaps. And I am definitely dubious of Joel Osteen. I mean, even though I am a, a Christian, I would not want to necessarily align myself with Joel Osteen. But I think something that could maybe have something to do with that, too, is both Osteen and Crowley were very much a kind of cult of personality type guys. And they had a way of pulling right. people in to them. So perhaps that has something to do with it as well. But one of the things that you mentioned in your book that I thought was really interesting. And I think it kind of attests to the fact that uh, Eccles was no just, you know, average dabbler in the dark arts, but, you know, definitely took it seriously was, uh, I can't remember, is it the working of Abramelin the mage or something like that? I know that Crowley did that, but he attempted that in prison, if I'm not wrong. Yeah, I think you're right. I think he did that same working. That's right. Yeah. There's, but yeah, I think that's right. Yeah. Is that yeah, in my book? I believe yeah, so. Funny. I believe so. I know that you talk about it in one point, the working of Abermel and the Mage, but I, there was some sort of working that Eccles was trying to do. And I believe that that is the one. I'm flipping through your book right now, trying to see if I can find it. But anyways, we have established that, you know, Eccles was, you know, not just your run-of-the-mill teenage Wiccan, but that he was something a little bit more... And you've already brought this up, but I think that it's important to the case. And this is something that um, people who are supporters of the West Memphis Three like to bring up. So I think it'd be good for the audience to get a you know different perspective to it. But could you tell us a little bit about the, I would say, confession of Jesse Miss Kelly, but it's actually the mini confessions of Jesse Miss Kelly. Right. Right, but I can answer the Abramel and the Mage. It was actually mentioned in his book, Life After Death, which I may have mentioned. But he said, on Good Friday, I began performing, performing the Holy Guardian Angel ritual as described in the book of the Sacred Magic of Abramel and the Mage. It's a prayer that asks for a higher self or outside intelligence for guidance, protection, and for forgiveness of all my weaknesses and sins. So 
Yes. And then he said, I shower, put on a clean white shoes and knelt to pray. If Alistair Crowley could do the ritual on horseback, then I can do it in a prison cell. So he's comparing himself to Crowley. And Crowley did that ritual at Bulliskin Manor. I think it was very the early part of the 20th century. He said like he summoned spirits and they were walking outside his door, but he never really completed it. But it required like uh, six months uh, to do it and all kinds of preparatory things and things like that. But yeah, so. Um, yeah, because it's all about trying to make yourself kind of uh, you have to go through this period of purity where, you know, you're not uh, engaging in sex or other you know types of acts of that. So where you can kind of uh, in order by, you know, I guess making yourself more holy for the time period, you're supposed to be able to have a command over demons and, and stuff like that. If my understanding is is correct, I remember looking into it a long time ago but yeah certainly very interesting and an interesting note about crowley and i'm sure that you have heard people say the same thing i don't know if this is your contention but i've heard some people say that you know perhaps the reason he had so many ill-fated uh consequences later in life is that he like was literally cursed as a result of you know not completing the ritual oh, i've heard that yeah no i've heard something like that so yeah, that may be the case. But I think he was cursed just from all the drugs he took and spending out all his money and living like a profligate. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that's that's really what happened to him. But <laughs> yeah, whether or how think. much he was, I mean, he was insane. Like there were there's rumors from Henry Miller, who wrote what Tropic of Cancer, who said that he was in a psych facility in um, Switzerland that they were sending him there and that he wasn't well. So. Uh, whether that's i haven't verified that but uh that was what henry miller said so something that i do know <clears throat> but yeah, a, yeah sorry, go ahead. oh no i was just gonna say i do know it's a recurring theme among many magicians is uh you know mental health problems and devastating consequences it almost seems like their attempt to try and influence the world with their will through magical means almost never ends up working out for them the way that you know they probably think it would yeah, there seems to be a correlation. There really does. It is uh, remarkable. Um, and Crowley himself, like later in his life, he like was in retrospect, he was asking himself whether he was insane. Like, yeah, like he got through everything into his like 50s and 60s. Like, man, was I crazy the whole time? So uh, that is an open question. But getting back to the Miskelly confessions, everybody goes to this confession. They say Miskelly was tortured, that it lasted 12 hours, that he was a 70 IQ guy. His tests were not high. He was obviously not very bright, but there's other tests that show in certain points of his parts of his IQ are like 88 or 84. So uh, obviously not a super bright guy, but after he got convicted, he just kept confessing over and over and recorded confessing. He told the cops when he was being taken to jail that they did it. And then there were two kind of recorded confessions people can listen to. One is called or referenced as the, um, Bible confession where he's put his hand on a Bible and said he did it. And then there was another one that's referenced as against the advice of his attorney. So his attorney was uh, Stidham, I think was his name. He's like, Jesse, don't do this. This is going to affect your appeal. He says, I want it done. No, Jesse, I don't think it's a good idea. And he's like, I want it done. So he confessed uh, to the prosecutors who prosecuted him. So he gave a, a, a oral, conf you know, audio confession. So people can listen to those. I think they're very telling. Um, and, uh, 
and he, I think he confessed a couple other times. And a lot of these, they all said they did it. Like one of the things that happened in, in Eccles' case is that he was in between the murders and his arrest. He was at a softball field and said, yeah, we killed him and we're going to kill two more. So those people testified that they heard that. Um, and then, well, I think Baldwin's, it was one of Baldwin's um, jailmates wrote something and said, yeah, he told me that they did it or something like that. So I think those are all in the in the court case or court record, too. Yeah, and you have many of them in your book where you publish these court cases, and there's many more people. I mean, it seems like, you know, Eccles and these different people were saying this almost to anybody who would listen to them. But, I mean, especially, like, with, like, the softball girls, I mean, I, I believe that they appeared in court, right, and they never recanted their uh, – you know, their eyewitness testimony or anything like that. So, yeah, no, no, they've never recanted and nobody's ever been like uh, charged with perjury or anything. I mean, you can't testify in court. If you lie, you go, you, there's consequences. Uh, typically they will, that's a, I think January, generally in the States, it's like a five year uh, jail sentence. So I think um, a lot, there's just been a lot of misinformation, intentional misinformation, and obfuscation in my mind about a lot of the stuff in the case. And uh, it is a telling that a lot, of, a lot of these people won't even ask the good questions like to Eccles or anybody else. They just don't even reference the court case, which is remarkable because it's available. You, it's easy as one click away. You can read through it. Like my book isn't super complex. It's really just a, an aggregation of a lot of those court cases in a kind of a time frame, So people know what happened as, you know, time commenced that long ago. And, um, uh, some people criticize me for that, but that's just the whole idea of getting clarity. I've never been sued, by the way. Nobody's ever said I've lied about anything or uh, made anything up. It's just me repeating the court case. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, we talked a little bit about Miss Kelly's confessions, but this was just something I was wondering because there are these multitude of confessions that he makes. And uh, the one with uh, his against his attorney's advice is particularly funny because you really didn't undersell it. I mean, when I was reading the confession that you have in your, you know, you have it in your book. I mean, it's like two or three pages of his lawyers being like, are you sure we really don't think that this is a, a good idea, but he insists upon confessing and he says himself that he knows that he doesn't have to confess. So, I mean, whatever you maybe make of the, the first confession, I mean, in subsequent confessions, I mean, you can't really argue that it was, you know, tortured out of him or that he, you know, didn't know what he was doing or that he had other options. But something that I did notice is in his multiple confessions, there are commonalities between the various different confessions. I mean, perhaps this is just um, trying to make himself look good, but, you know, he makes it seem like Baldwin and Eccles were the ones who were primarily involved with the murder and that he just, you know, kind of held down and beat on one of these boys and whatnot. But there also are some differences between these different confessions. So what do you make of the different versions of events that uh, Miss Kelly, you know, has with each subsequent confession? They say in, I mean, I'm not a criminal attorney, but I'm not a person who is in the criminal justice system either, but it's a common known, in my understanding, it's a commonly known when people confess, they minimize their involvement in the crime. It's almost like a standard thing. They never go out, yeah, we did it. We did the whole thing. It's always somebody else. So I think he's probably doing that 
that stance where he's trying to minimize his involvement. I think he said he ran away at a certain point after some one of the events. So, and it's not clear. There are additional pieces in, of the other confessions that aren't in some. So uh, it may just be based on the questions, but I think that they're convincing that he was there and witnessed those things. So um, I don't know if anybody could take a story and recount it in detail the exact same way you know, when they, when they, in a, a week, you know, within the seven days later. And I think if they did recite it exactly the same way, it would be very questionable. Like it, would be, it wouldn't be a natural retelling of events. So I think the criticism for it, for his confessions or whatever, I think that uh, they fall flat. I mean, he's admitting it to it in front of his prosecutors. Like, like he has the, I think his name was Fogelman, Price were there. So it's not some kind of... Uh, you know, it's sterile environment where he's at like a Starbucks or something. He's there with all the attorneys. Yeah, yeah. No, and his attorneys let him know that he doesn't have to do it. The investigators, you know, ask on the record, have we treated you nice? You know, we got you a cheeseburger. We got you sodas and stuff. You know, we're not, you know, so, um, yeah, I mean, people can go read that or listen to that for themselves. But, um so did any of the West Memphis three show a more intimate knowledge of the crimes committed than would have been known to the public? I mean, I think that there was something on the stand that Eccles knew that wasn't in the papers. I think they proved that he had some kind of information that wasn't in the papers. So I think that that was one thing they got him on the stand. of. I mean, it's been a while since I've gone through everything, but think there were i'm trying to remember like i can't remember offhand other than that do you remember anything i want to say if i'm not mistaken it's a little bit graphic but um i think during that um, initial not interrogation but interview with Eccles, when they're asking you know why do you think someone would do this you know because they'd want to but you know and then he talks about how uh you know the younger and the more innocent the victim, the uh, more power it would give somebody and saying all these weird statements. But um, he's, he says this at some point, but doesn't he mention something about how they would urinate in the children's mouths or oh, something right. like that? Right. And uh, yeah, there's a whole issue with that, that he stated that and then Peretti found it in one of the children's stomachs was urine. So like there was some kind of statement that he made prior to his arrest about urine being in one of the boys, like something happened, like they tortured him or something. Yeah. And I think that there was a couple other things that I can't remember off the top of my head, but it does seem that they had some more knowledge of the crimes committed than would have necessarily been known to the public. But anyhow, the West Memphis three, so they were found guilty and 18 years after they were arrested, they would be walking the streets again and this was because of the Alford plea deal, which I was not aware of an Alford plea deal prior to looking into this. So could you tell us, you know, just a little bit about what the Alford plea deal is and how if they right. were found guilty, they could, you know, see the light of day again, given uh, the nature. Right. But of it the really it's kind of yeah, that kind of it conflates two kind of precepts in the law. There's a plea deal and there's an Alford plea. They're two separate. The Alford plea is was a decision by the Supreme Court, Alford, be North Carolina, that allowed somebody to 
publicly profess innocence while proclaiming in court they're guilty. So they did, the court found that that was acceptable for, I guess, First Amendment rights. So then in that plea deal, that was written into the plea deal that they had in August of 2011, which is them pleading guilty. They actually vacated the earlier convictions and then made them plead guilty again to first degree murder on signing on the dotted line with the best lawyers they could have with a 10 year probationary period. And so that was kind of what happened to get out. And it was due to kind of pressure that they put on the um, state. I think over time, it was just slow, long-term pressure. They got a very good appellate uh, attorney who passed away. His name is Dennis Reardon. Um, so uh, that plea deal had all that stuff in there. So they pled guilty. And you can hear, I actually just posted on my Twitter, like you can see them saying guilty. They knew they pled guilty again. And then the prosecutor at that time, they had changed prosecutors. They had a new judge. They went from Burnett to Laser. Um, he, the prosecutor says, I don't believe anybody is responsible for this crime than the people right here. So, uh, they also signed on the plea deal, never to be able to sue the state of Arkansas is my understanding, but there's all these kind of stunts going on in the last couple months of like trying to get more DNA evidence as if that would prove anything, um, or, or finger another thing, but they've always kind of used that from, in my opinion, as a PR stunt. Hey, we, they never found our DNA, therefore we're innocent. But they've never been able to overturn their guilty pleas. They're still guilty at law, right? That's very important. They are guilty. So when people see use these terms like, oh, they're innocent, that's not true. They're guilty at law. They're, they said they're guilty. They signed on the dotted line that they're guilty in 2011. So anything to the contrary of that is really kind of muddled, sloppy thinking. It's like, they're guilty. People yeah. don't understand, like, that's a legal term, you know? So anyway. yeah. So the, the Alford plea was within their plea deal that they arranged with the state in 2011. And I'm assuming that it was the vacation of their earlier convictions that would even allow someone like Miss Kelly to be able to take this kind of plea deal. Because in order to say that you're innocent but plead guilty, um, I mean, he, you know, he, he confessed multiple times to the crime. So that's right. I mean, it's all overlooked. I think that they just really grind ground into the system in Arkansas, put pressure. There was a lot of public pressure. There was celebrity pressure. Uh, there was this kind of concept that went out that they were really innocent, that they were unjustly uh, arrested and convicted. So I think it just kind of worked on the people. And then the people who were working on it were no longer there. They went on to different judgeships and stuff like that. So they got kind of a new group of people to look at it. And they're probably like, I don't want to go back to court. They probably, my, my guess is they didn't. There was this kind of pressure being put on them for new DNA testing based upon new legislation that allowed people to retest their DNA if it wasn't tested in the early court case. But that was kind of what put pressure, in my opinion, on the kind of state to uh, just say, hey, whatever, we'll just settle this and let you out. So... Uh, to me, that was a miscarriage of justice. I think that uh, they should have gone through your standard kind of parole process or whatever. So, Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, you mentioned a little bit about how there's been these, you know, recent, um, you know, possibly just PR stunts to try and get DNA evidence or that there is no DNA evidence. Well, we've already covered some of these circumstantial evidence, whether that be 
you know, Damien Eccles and his mental state and history of violence um, leading up to this, or how that he seemed to know facts about the crimes that he shouldn't have known at the time. Then there's also, you know, eyewitness testimony that placed them on the night of the motor murders close to the murder scenes. I mean, there was the Hollingworth's, Hollingsworth's eye testimony where they said that they saw Damien Eccles along with, I believe it was his girlfriend, um, you know, covered in mud, you know, walking near the murder scene, you know, shortly after they were, you know, uh, these murders would have taken place. But, you know, maybe there's no DNA evidence, but it does seem that there is a bit of physical evidence as well that could possibly point to Eccles, Miss Kelly, and Baldwin being involved with the crime, such as the uh, the fiber evidence and the blue candle wax, the lake knife, and right. the bloody necklace. Could you tell us just a little bit about some of this physical evidence that, while not 100% conclusive, seems to strongly lead into the direction of the West Memphis three being the perpetrators right. of the crime. There was blue wax found at the, at the crime scene. There was luminol testing actually that was done. They found blood all over the place, but luminol was not admissible. So that was just in the kind of evidentiary file for the case. DNA was really just getting started at that time in 93. Um, there was a lake knife that was found. There was a trailer park with a huge lake and, uh, Divers went and found a kind of a big serrated knife that they think was consistent with the wounds that were found there. Some people argue it was placed by the cops. I don't know, but that was another thing. And then during the trial, somebody found Eccles' necklace and they tested it and they found that there was blood consistent with, I think, Eccles and one of the boys. So there was like a mix of blood in that. And there's actually a sequence filming that in um, Paradise Lost. So it's like an outtake. You can see it online, but so there was physical evidence. They decided not to stop the trial and, and enter that evidence into a new trial. But uh, there was some, there was definitely kind of this evidence there. And there was like, I'm trying to remember, like there was something consistent. If I remember with the rug, uh, there were rug fibers that were found at the scene that were consistent with another rug. So there was stuff there. There was physical, but there was direct evidence. People saw him at the scene he admitted to doing it at the at the um, softball field, so the jury saw everything, and, and it was unanimous. They unanimously convicted. Yeah, yeah, and you know, there's the wax that he had blue candle wax inside. Uh, Eccles did inside of his home, and there was blue candle wax on one of these children. And uh, I mean, then there's other things, you know, that would point to there being multiple perpetrators, such as the knots that were used to bind the kids hands to their feet i mean there was three separate knots tied which would tend to make one believe that there would be three separate killers you know because you would think that if you were going to you know tie up some people that if it was one person that they would do it all the same way but you know we talked a little bit about damian eccles and his interest in the occult so something that i found interesting in your book is that you talk about how basically word in West Memphis, Arkansas was traveling around about Satanists in the area and various type of evidence of satanic activity. So was there a reason for locals to believe this? Or was this, as you know, Paradise Lost would have us believe, the overactive imaginations of hyper-religious rural folk? 
Right, right. Well, I, I've talked to people who lived in West Memphis. A lot of it is a lot, heavily African-American as well. And not as some kind of fat, they always portray it as some kind of hotbed of evangelical Christianity. But people who've lived around there uh, say it's not. I think that's kind of like one of the phantasms of kind of left uh, coastal left-wing people is like everybody's a hillbilly and a and a rabid Christian. So I think that I think that that's uh, misapplied in the context of that. It seems like there was a lot of lower upper uh, lower middle class people with drug problems in West Memphis, but there were lots of statements to police about strange things happening in Robin Hood Hills. There are two very interesting statements given to police. One is by Alvis Clem Bly who says he was involved in a lot of occultism and they had a secret kind of occult book. There was also a statement by Clymer, Ricky Clymer, who, who said, yeah, I think there's other people involved. I just don't want to name them so that I don't want to get them busted. So there may have been more than three people involved. Uh, there were strange things happening around there. There was a guy at Bojangles who ended up in there in his own like excrement and blood, which is very strange at the same time of the murders uh, that was never followed up on. He was African-American. Um, there was like supposedly some guy got in a, in a cab and drove 400 miles and paid it off of leaving the same night of those murders. So there might've been other people involved. Um, but yeah, you can hear it all. And even, 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 um, Miss Kelly talks about this place they would go to and light fires and eat dogs or something. It was at uh, this place called, they called it Stonehenge. And I actually take police pictures of Stonehenge and that they're kind of make up the cover of my book, but uh, they would go there supposedly and do horrible things. And there's uh, allegations of sexual abuse and um, yeah, just a lot. It's just kind of like very dark and very strange too. things happened in 1993 where like his family, the Eccles family were at some bonfire in on the shores of uh, the Mississippi and somebody got shot. So there was like a murder, another murder associated with the family that same year. Um, it was somebody they were living with, the mother was living with. And I think the mother's already has passed away. But it was, uh, you can just read through all the statements in the book. It's like, wow, this is, it didn't happen in some vacuum. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I mean, there was, you know, multiple locals who were saying that they saw, you know, people going into the woods to do some sort of rituals or that they would hear chanting or people's dogs going missing or people finding dead dogs, you know, at Stonehenge or, you know, some of these places where this type of stuff was going on. So that was a little bit reminiscent to me of the uh, son of Sam murders in the sense that, you know, it's not just that there's only rumors and, you know, the hearsay of, you know, hyper religious folk or, or something like that. But, you know, I mean, people are finding the dogs, you know, around these places where there's, you know, all this satanic and occult symbolism going on. And people are saying that they see people coming in and out of the woods who are, you know, dressed in garbs or, or whatever. Right. So, I mean, I guess and that even like, uh, his like uh, driver, Jerry driver said he saw them walking around with staves, like they were druids or something. There were like uh, allegations of like harassment of a pig's head, like just crazy kind of savagery like uh, going on. Uh, so, yeah, it's very strange. Yeah. So in your opinion, um, because I mean, I 
this is something that I've been thinking about because I um, lean pretty heavily towards your position to where it really seems like the West Memphis three are guilty. But in your opinion, were the murders a crime of opportunity by the three? Do you think that this was a planned attack? Or do you even think that it was possible that this was a ritual sacrifice? Or is it, a you know, I guess it possibly could be a spur of the moment thing, but done for, you know, ritualistic reasons or what have you. So what do you make of, you know, the, the crime? And- I would, I believe it had some kind of ritual involvement, in my opinion, looking at everything. If you look at the way that the deaths happened, uh, the way the boy, boys, horrible things happened that, uh, there was blue wax there that there was some kind of druidic thing going on. I don't know what it was, but the bog, like submerging bodies in bogs is very druidic like as a kind of like a sacrifice or killing. Um, and echoes past uh, things. Like I think he burnt down something and was chanting in there. So he seemed to uh, have that on his mind. If you look, there's like a drawing I included in my book where they do a, like a ritual baby murder. Like he's drawing about that with a baby rattle. And there's a star up above with energy going up to it and tombstones. And those trees are the exact kind of trees that were um, around West Memphis. I forgot the name of them offhand, but it seems like it was a ritualized murder to me. Yeah, And they used to have like, there were allegations people were going around in like a white van taking pictures of people. They had a black briefcase that they included a bunch of wax stuff in it. Uh, I think it went missing or there's a picture of it maybe in the uh, court file. So there's a lot of strange things going on, uh, but it all adds up to me as like some kind of, some kind of ritualized murder. Yeah. Not just some uh, crime of passion. Yeah. And then you have Ret- uh, Eccles with the blood drinking and his, you know, uh, statements to investigators, like, you know, the younger the victim, the more energy that you'd be able to get from them, the more power that it's going to, to have and you know this is an idea that's reflected in various different occult traditions and stuff like that throughout time and you know you were talking about how uh, the druids how there's a significance to sub um you know submerging bodies in in water and stuff like that and even Eccles he would tell the police about the symbolic significance of water i can't remember exactly what it is that he said off the top of my head so even if this was some sort of spur of the moment thing, it'd be kind of hard to believe that, you know, I mean, people's beliefs factor into just about everything that it is that they do, you know? So, I mean, obviously if you have someone who's an avid occultist and they go murder somebody, um, you know, that's probably going to factor into, you know, why it is that they, that they did that. So something that I thought that was interesting in your book is um, you include a portion about John Douglas, who people today might know as the uh, guy who's, you know, there's like kind of a fictional portrayal of him in the Netflix show Mindhunter, but he was kind of one of the earliest FBI profilers and stuff. And I just thought it was really laughable when I was reading in your book, him saying that Satanism almost never has any, you know, or doesn't ever have any influence on a crime and that he's never seen a, you know, a murder that was influenced by Satanism. So what do you make of the words of John Douglas and others who kind of contend that? Not, 
Not much, because I can provide that evidence. And I list some of the cases in there of satanic motivated crimes. I mean, you mentioned Son of Sam, but I think he came from kind of a politicized, in my opinion, politicized FBI. There was this guy Lanning who discounted that as well. So maybe that position is a position that the FBI wants to maintain. But it's not consistent with so many things that have happened in the world of satanic crime. The Madame Moros killings, Mark Kilroy, um, you can just kind of go down the list of how many of these guys were occultists. It was the uh, Ripper crew out of Chicago, totally into the occult and committing just heinous acts, brutal, heinous stuff. But uh, so it is curious. His whole involvement is really something else because I think he got involved in this kind of late push after like 2005, 2006. But he came up with all these statements, which he has repeated in his book. And he's supposedly a, a creditable figure. Right. So he's like, well, known, but he wrote of this book called I forgot the name of it, but uh, it has all these things in the West of Memphis three that he clearly didn't read the uh, the court record because there's all kinds of evidence of violence from all these people talking about violence and blood drinking and stuff like that. So he I titled like one section in my book about him is failure to read because these are disparate, many different people talking about this kind of occultism. So it is curious, but also. He was, I mean, according to him, this isn't me saying that, it was his involvement, and it's one of the riddles and mysteries of the entire saga. It really is a saga. Uh, it's a 30-year saga. But one of the riddles and mysteries is that he is, his opinions shaped the views of some of the family members. So he actually met with some of the family members. He met with Mark uh, Byers, and the other one was Hobbs's wife. Uh, so... And they their 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 views of the who was the perp and stuff were changed by his involvement, which is really disturbing. So uh, my opinion of Douglas, and apparently some people have, like he bungled the Green River murders too, as somebody else told me. So he uh, to me is uh, at least involved in this West Memphis three. There's a lot of questions there because, and and then that's the other thing is like there's so much political stuff and some people. <laughs> Whether he was getting paid, there was tons of money uh, raised by the West Memphis Three that's guesstimated to be like ten or twenty million dollars. So that's a huge war chest. Um, so how much he got paid for his opinions or something, I don't know. But it is odd when you overlook so many things in, in the court record that uh, would indicate just stuff. And he could have yeah, I, he overlooked the confessions of Mess Kelly. He overlooked a lot of stuff. So. Why would he do that? And I think it's that's kind of like a, an indicator of so many people in this case who just overlook the court records. Like, are you saying the court records are false? Are you saying the police work is false? Uh, and so if you omit that, I mean, I guess Orwell said omission is the greatest form of lie. They're omitting a lot of stuff. And he overlooked a mountain of, of information, in my opinion. Yeah. Yeah, I believe that book was Law and Disorder by... By Douglas, where he, yeah, but yeah, you, and I also you, speculated maybe it was Olshaker. Olshaker was his uh, sidekick, so maybe he just put his name on that, and Olshaker did all the talking or something. I, I don't know. It could be anything like that. I don't know, but yeah, Douglas is a interesting guy. He's always been very self-aggrandizing. Um, I remember talking to my girlfriend one time and she read the mind hunter book and she said that she could hardly get through it just because, you know, his head's so far up his own butt. But, um, and I know that Jimmy Fallon Gong has done some good work about some of the uh, stuff along kind of 
um, extrapolating from what Dave McGowan did back in the day, but he's talked a bit about John Douglas and how the FBI came up with their profiles for serial killers and how it basically fails to take into account, you know, it's always, des- you know, looking for a, a lone nut, uh, you know, or some kind of sexual sadist lone man or, or something like that. And, you know, it, there's basically, you know, they never account for, uh, you know, cults or groups or something like that, which, you know, we see time and time again, whether it be a case like the West Memphis three or son of Sam or the Chicago rippers or any of that stuff that, you know, that's certainly not the case. And yeah, you also do a good job in your book of not only, uh, relaying the story of some other, you know, satanically inspired, you know, murders and crimes, but specifically teenagers who committed uh, satanic crimes. And there was some stuff, some people in here who I never heard of, like the acid king, Ricky Casso, um, who would, you know, trip acid with some friends. And uh, one of the people owed him money and there was beef over that. So he would sacrifice him to Satan and say that Satan was the one who made him do it. Or James Ryan Bunnell in Tulsa, Oklahoma, who, you know, had a Bible where he was writing all these satanic things in the margin of the book. And then he would kill his 15 year old brother. And you have, you know, multiple other stories in there. So, I mean, yeah, what someone like John Douglas has to say is just patently false with, you know, um, I mean, you could do a five second Google search and find that so false. Right. You can just say it. So I think it's something political. It may be just like the FBI line. I did a full show on the landing report and broke that down and why that's baloney. I've also talked to a very well-known kind of academic, Carl Raschke, who wrote Painted Black. And he said, just like exactly what you said, it's that these people have ideas and they use that ideology to do things, commit crimes. So if you're really interested in money, you rob banks. Or if you're uh, sexually driven, you go after women or whatever. So uh, if somebody has the satanic ideology, you can go watch it. And like another example is like the vampire clan, which a lot of people wouldn't believe the vampire clan out of Kentucky or Tennessee, like acting like vampires, blood drinking, murder, and just craziness, but group by groups, right? And I think the head guy was this kind of a cold obsessed kid, um, called himself Fasajo or something like that. I can't remember his name offhand, but yeah, he. Uh, they, I think there's a lot of overlapping, curious things between them and, and what happened in the West Memphis Three. So with the West Memphis Three, um, we've talked a little bit about some of the evidence for, you know, some type of cult or satanic activity going on in West Memphis, Arkansas during this time. But could you maybe tell us a little bit about um, what you think do you think that the West Memphis three were kind of just the three of them practice Satanism together? Do you believe that there was a larger cult at hand? I know that there are some stories of Eccles being introduced to witchcraft by an elder and stuff like this. Um, so, I mean, what do you think? Do you think that there were part of a, like a witchcraft coven or some kind of, you know, other occult group or a satanic group? I mean, it's a good question. I think that there was some other guy they called Lucifer, who they mentioned in the in the court statements. It's not in the court record, but there was some older person. They used to travel across the Mississippi to go to Memphis to 
visit with other people. Um, the mother would encourage him and get, you know, occult books from libraries and stuff like that or bookstores. So it seems to me that that was the environment they were in. It was, I think it was a family environment. I think the mother was like, uh, involved in that. So it seems to me kind of an intergenerational is my sense of, uh, what was going on. And, and I think that there were networked and still networked. I mean, Eccles, after he got out, he networked with, uh, you know, as many occult influenced people, it seems as possible. And is there's pictures of him with Marilyn Manson and this guy, Genesis P. Orridge, and, um, there's even a movie of them together. So going back to what happened before 93, I think that there was something of a network. Yeah, for sure. I thought that was so, I mean, now it's really networked. Like, yeah, Christianity oh. is networked, right? So you can communicate with anybody all over the world. So it's, I think that occultism is the same way. So there's all kinds of people all over the world. Like I deal with all these other OTO people who love Crowley all the time on social media. So, um, yeah. So, yeah, I think yeah, that, I mean, that was probably like what was happening. Yeah, I mean, I just think that people always align over their interest. And I mean, if you like to play basketball, you go find other people who like to play basketball. You know what I mean? If witchcraft or Satanism is your thing, you're probably going to go try and find, you know, some other people who are into the same thing. I mean, I don't know why people would, you know, with every other thing besides the occult or Satanism or murder or whatever. I mean, with everything else, you know, people like to hang out with like minded people with the same interests. But, you know. If you're talking about something that's, you know, on the uh, on the fringe and dark side of, of humanity, all of a sudden that that same rule doesn't know no longer applies. Right. But right. Um, in Paradise Lost, there's a host of other potential culprits that are given as, you know, you know, maybe they were the ones who committed these murders you know because i mean the whole documentary is trying to exonerate in the public mind the the west memphis three but what do you make of some of these other potential culprits i mean i know you talked about mr bojangles and i hadn't even put together in my mind that i mean it's possible that he was you know just um an additional person to the murder but then there's also like a heavy focus on Mark Byers, who's one of the father of the slain children and others. Right. So there were two suspects. I don't think that in the, the first Paradise Lost in 96 had the kind of deflection going on. At the end of that, Echo says, I'm the West Memphis Three Boogeyman. But in the second and third, it went from Byers to Hobbs. In the second one, both Baldwin and, and Eccles state with 100% certainty that it's John Mark Byers. So it is an interesting statement uh, by them. But the likelihood is strange. I mean, there were there were allegations that Byers was involved. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's really hard to prove. Um, but at the time of the killings, they were never suspects or Hobbs. And they were seen together that night. Nobody ever saw... Hobbs or Byers with mud, you would have been muddy because whoever committed those crimes got in the water, right? So nobody ever said that. The wife didn't. But there's a lot of, it gets murky because they're all fighting with one one another. And there's this change and there's money being bandied around, which is also strange. Like who does a documentary where they have to pay for the talent? It really shouldn't even be called a documentary. Like I was shocked when I found out that some of the people on screen were paid cash dollars. They're really actors, actors. And a lot of what Mark Byers does is stunts was encouraged by these guys. So 
um, the evidence for buyers uh, went away and then the, then they kind of moved on to Hobbs and there's there's been misstatements that a hair was found that is his that was found by the defense is supposedly the Hobbs hair and uh, that really doesn't hold any water. The reality is that the defense tested that it was never a court where they put it in a court file, but there was never any kind of legal proceeding is my understanding to verify that that's him. It was just consistent with Hobbs, but it became in the public mind Hobbs's hair, which even if it was, doesn't prove anything because the kids were from his home. So um, it's just, to me, that's a more proof of obfuscation uh, that they're trying to put this out in the public eye that it's like, Oh, we're certain now that it's not these guys because we found the DNA of somebody else. And it's also goes into kind of the CSI effect. I've talked about that on my podcast all the time is like people need to have this DNA in their minds to get a conviction. Now when DNA and the whole history of criminal offenses really is within the last 20 years or 25 years, like they used to convict people on, you know, direct evidence, first statements. What did you say? What did people say you saw? Um, So I think the whole DNA ploy in the public is really a PR, like a PR attempt. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't find those, the idea that um, Hobbs did it or um, that buyers did it are, are really real at all. Yeah. Well, something that we've already discussed just a little bit, but I think is, you know, maybe worth expanding upon is just, Eccles hanging out with all these people like Marilyn Manson and Genesis Peorage and Johnny Depp and others. Um, I, I particularly found it really interesting when I figured out that he was hanging out with Genesis Peorage because Peorage, while I don't think that Peorage was, you know, guilty necessarily of the uh, ritual abuse allegations that they were accused of. I do find it interesting that uh, at least if you're to believe the mainstream narrative when it comes to both of them, they're both people who are, you know, been falsely demonized and accused in the public eye of, you know, satanic ritual abuse or, you know, ritual sacrifice. So when the two of them started hanging out together, I was like, you know, if I was one of them and I truly was innocent, that would uh, I'd maybe steer clear of hanging out with other people who've had the same accusations made against me. It's right. not that great of a look. No, it's not at all. So he, uh, Gen- uh, Genesis Peorge left or fled the UK after allegations of ritual abuse. And some of those pictures, I've seen the video, they're terrifying. There was like somebody on like strapped. I mean, I don't know if they were, people thought it looked real, but somebody was strapped to like a, an X and like there was blood. Like they were, he was doing really intense kind of, Marina Abramovich style so-called performance art, and so he fled actually to T- Timothy Leary's place. But uh, yeah, P. Orge uh, got into deep stuff and was very much involved in like the really gnarly uh, Crowley level type stuff. Burroughs, like he was. I mean, he got he. Yeah, I mean, we can get into details about his life, but he got his name because he you know, ate his own semen and like he was a uh, androgyne, a positive androgyne, kind of like the way Crowley talked about Satan. So I think that you can actually trace all this kind of weird gender fluidity and uh, transsexualism through Genesis P. Orge. Now, somebody told me that Eccles said that Genesis P. Orge was his godmother. So it's not just hanging out with. I think there's a far closer 
um, connection. And they were in a movie together called IRL. And they're kind of like in a, the scene is some kind of uh, creepy scene in a, like an army they're in a gun shop. Or, yeah, in a gun shop. And Eccles is holding a shotgun. Like, it's so weird. This is, the city is a dangerous place, you know, whatever. It's weird. Yeah, no, I, I definitely, when I watched that, found it to be a little bit off-putting. And I talked about Peorge before on my show and, you know, re- their relation to the Process Church of the Final Judgment and how um, the uh, book by Timothy Wiley, I mean, pretty much all the, uh, you know, pictures of, you know, the Process publications, it came from Peorge's personal library because they had collected all of this stuff, you know, for uh you know pretty much all the uh process magazine publications and when forming their own cult the uh the psychic temple of Av or, or I, I can't remember it exactly psychic temple of youth psychic temple of youth yeah yeah, yeah. They spell it ov or whatever ov yeah. yeah yeah they would uh yeah there's a lot of weird connections like he i hear there's pictures of him doing our videos of orge doing a process church ritual like he's definitely in there he's yeah. in the mix he's probably a member yeah yeah well and when he was forming his own cult he would consult members of the process as far as you know how to construct the hierarchy and you know kind of where wow. did you guys go wrong how can i you know better you know do mine um but and, and well, it is interesting too. So one of his one more thing is that he wrote the temple, no, the the psychic Bible, right, with a K, like Crowley, and the, one of the editors is, is some guy named Louve L O U V, who also runs his own magic thing. And at these new latest hearings in Arkansas, where they filed the paperwork in the wrong spot, he was there. So not only is Eccles like associated with this guy Genesis Peorge, but somebody else who was a member, high ranking member or something of. Uh, the Temple of Psychic Youth, Jason Louve, L-O-U-V. So, so you see these overlaps with these guys. They are fellow travelers, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah very... They're also biased. They're also biased, yeah. So you also, you know, some of these people are activists. They're not like objective uh, analyzers. And I think that's very telling. And some people have to realize that because they, uh, sometimes they think they're just like very detached analyst of this but they're not they're the opposite of it yeah no absolutely absolutely and i mean last thing i'll say about genesis peorge when i was doing research into them when i was doing a couple episodes on the process what i found maybe the most creepy is where all of the weird you know sex practices that they were up to was going on with you know chains hanging from the ceiling and and stuff like this and where they would do rituals and stuff they named that room in the house the nursery which is certainly disturbing and then when they would be raided by the police they would find all kinds of snuff films and nazi memorabilia and stuff like that i mean the recording label that they created um had a picture of a gas chamber from auschwitz that was the you know what they use as their record label so definitely seem to have an interest in everything that is kind of dark and twisted and someone like peorage when it comes to someone like eccles I don't even really think that it matters to them if they're um, guilty or innocent or um, of the crime. 
Um, and even if he was to have been the one to commit it, I don't really even see that bothering someone like Peorage. Um, even if they aren't accused of the satanic ritual abuse um, allegations that they were accused of. I mean, I, I think that they would think that it's cool to know a murderer. Same with someone like Marilyn Manson, who's, you know, fascinated with all this kind of stuff. And now he's got his own allegations about him, about, you know, sexual impropriety and stuff like that. So very interesting that, you know. Yeah, no, it's very interesting. And look into Peter Christofferson, who was friends with or very close to a member of Throbbing Gristle, Throbbing Gristle with Orage, who was a Burroughs loving, you know, uh, dark occultist, loved Crowley, was a member of the Luminates of Thanatero. So very uh, strange. And I've done a lot of research on him in regards to the Smiley Face Killer. So, uh, yeah, no, these are those connections. I mean, it's uh, it's pretty interesting. The fact like I did an article, I think it was back in the day in 2012 or 13. It was called Birds of a Feather. And it was just showing echoes with all these other occult influenced people. So, yes, it's there. Certainly very interesting and uh, really can make you wonder about um, Eccles and the other people around him. Um, So, when we get off this recording, I'll talk to you for a second afterwards, but just before we stop recording, I just want to ask you kind of to wrap things up. What do you want people to take away from your research into the West Memphis Three and your book Abomination, aside from their um, not legal guilt, but their actual guilt in in the case? Is there anything else that you uh, want people to take away from this story, and why do you think it's important? Well, I think it's an important from a public relations aspect and culture creation and. Uh, mind manipulation, because I think it's a, that's an important component of how they've changed the public mind. I mean, they got public support, they got people to pay money. So I think that that's uh, an important aspect in how people should be distrustful of uh, PR narratives and know the difference between factual and non-factual. They're legally guilty. They're still guilty. Um, I do believe they're actually guilty, like in, as a court of law. They had appeals. I think they got their due process. And um, I think it's kind of dangerous because just even in the most recent discussion he had with Tim Poole, he there were aspersions like he's casting aspersions upon the legal system and the political class as if he was done something happened to him that was unjust. So I think that there's a much different story in the court records and the due process that he was given. And I think that you've covered a lot of that, the Exhibit 500, the Jesse Confessions. So there's a lot more to the story and you should, people should ask the question in any environment where he's talking or anybody about the West Memphis three, have they looked at all the facts? Have they looked at all the facts? So that would be my primary takeaway. Yeah. Well, I could not agree with more. And I mean, as far as Eccles goes, I mean, if you were to ask him, he's, you know, never been guilty of anything. And if you go look at the exhibit 500 evidence, I mean, there's, you know, writings from his journals and stuff where he talks about how he literally believes himself to be above everyone and how he has this utter disdain for humanity. So it kind of seems like some test book, textbook narcissist type stuff. So um, that's, you know, not I'm surprising. A wolf, wolves eat sheep. Yeah. Wolves eat sheep, all that stuff. Yeah. 
very much like uh, so. Crowley's work in the Book of the Law when it gets to the uh, last aeon that he talks about. And uh, that's, you know, I mean, even Eccles talks about how he believes himself to literally be, to be this messiah figure and how he was going to kill himself and he was going to come back from the dead. And he wasn't going to be like Jesus and pe bring peace, but he was going to bring about war, you know, so just right. uh, crazy, crazy stuff that in it. One of the reasons that I have the title of the book is because of he was talking about he was going to be an abomination or abomination. So that's where I got that that uh, title is from that part of Exhibit 500 Road you just quoted. Yeah, yeah, no. So certainly very interesting stuff. And I found the book to be important just because for the reasons you said, and I think it's also always just important to show people that regardless of or not, if you believe in the devil yourself, that there are people who do believe in the in the devil or if you don't believe in the occult yourself or in witchcraft, there are people who do, and that influences the decisions they make. Because I think that a lot of people, especially in our secular age of today, you know, they go, they don't think that way. And, you know, so they, you know, think, oh, well, you know, the occult, occult sacrifice is something like a Franklin scandal or a son of Sam cult kind of thing. That could never happen. You know, that's just, you know, ridiculous, you know fantasies of religious people and stuff like that who are you know still stuck in the satanic panic mindset of the 80s so i think anytime that you can show another example that this stuff is in fact real that it does happen and that it is something that people should you know be concerned about not saying to uh, to panic over it or that even you know that satanic sacrifice and stuff like that is all that common but it is important to acknowledge and i mean uh, with all the talk there is about, you know, listening to victims and, and stuff like that these days. I mean, it seems like the only instance when it's kind of socially acceptable to no longer listen to victims is if it's someone who says that, you know, they suffered at the hands of a satanic cult or something like that. Then all of a sudden, you know, those Franklin cover up people, they're all lying or whatever. But anyhow. Right. Satanic panic stuff. All that stuff, you know, gets brought up, it gets disparaged. And I think the mass media doesn't cover it anymore, although the alternate media seems to not have a problem with it. Yeah, no, and I think that more and more people are beginning to see that uh, satanic panic's an unfair term. And I mean, even some of the examples that are touted about as, you know, of you know, textbook examples of satanic panic, like uh, the Presidio stuff with Aquino and Aquino and all those people. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing more and more people, you know, look into that and, you know, and stuff like that. So I think that that's, you know, hopefully going to become a, a thing of the past. It's been long enough since the, um, you know, eighties and nineties caricature of, you know, uh, satanic panic that hopefully people are beginning to, move past that. And thanks to the work of people like you, um, I think that that is helping with people, you know, realize that it's not necessarily a, a panic, but that there really is, you know, sometimes stuff that goes on that ties back to the occult and groups, occult groups and stuff like that. So I definitely find that to be important. Well, anyways, I want to thank you for coming on, Mr. Ramsey. I will talk to you for a little bit after we finish our recording. But just one last time for my audience, where all can they find your work and support you? 
you can listen to my podcast. I'm almost at 900 episodes. It's William Ramsey Investigates. You can find it on iTunes. You can buy books from me. You can buy Abomination at WilliamRamseyInvestigates.com. You can also get it on Amazon. And then I have five videos on, or documentaries on Vimeo if people are interested in that. And that's about it. And you can reach me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Gab, Instagram if you want to ask me any questions. Sure.